Welcome to episode 27, our last of four episodes celebrating National Poetry Month. I'm Rachel Zucker, and this is Commonplace, conversations with poets and other people. It's been really exciting to be able to bring you four episodes this month. Julie Carr, Ross Gay, Alice Notley, and now this conversation with Rita Dove. It's been a thrill and an honor to talk with these poets, to re-listen to these conversations, to read their poems in preparation, and read the books they've recommended during the conversations. Poetry has given me a place to feel a deep and wide range of emotions, to think through the artistic, moral, ethical, and personal questions of my life to locate myself in my own time and place and community, and to think outside myself, my family, my time, my concerns. Starting this podcast has opened poetry up for me in ways I couldn't have imagined and given me a new community. The poets and artists I speak with, Nicholas, Christine, Zach, Dan, and the many other people who help make Commonplace, and you, the listeners. Thank you so much for being part of this community. It's a privilege to be part of your lives. I want to give you a sense of what was going on for me when I got to sit down with Rita Dove on March 30th, 2017, in her well-lit office filled with books and photographs of beautiful Rita and other famous poets and writers. This past winter, I'd read several amazing young adult novels to my nine-year-old son, Judah including The War That Changed My Life and Thomas Jefferson's Sons, both by Kimberly Brubaker Bradley. Reading to my kids has been one of my greatest pleasures, and these two books in particular are extraordinary because of the way that Bradley describes the hardest topics, war, parental abuse, slavery, violence, without simplifying or whitewashing, and yet in a way that young adults can engage with. Bradley's book about the children of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings so upset and fascinated my son and me that I decided to take Judah on a trip to Virginia. I ended up taking my oldest son, Moses, as well, and I contacted Rita to see if she had time to speak with me while I was there. Rita generously agreed. So on the afternoon that we spoke, I had driven from Colonial Williamsburg, where I'd been with my two sons for two days, to Charlottesville to meet with Rita and then the next day go to Monticello. We'd stopped on the way to buy my youngest son new cleats for the spring soccer season, which is always a big deal. We'd had lunch with the poet John Castine, who told us the story of his family's immigration and described aspects of Charlottesville and Virginia politics. Also that morning, I'd had a long conversation with my friend, the poet and children's literature writer, Laurel Snyder, about a New Orleans band she'd seen called Tank and the Bangas. It was also the day that my contribution was due for Major Jackson's Renga for Obama project. So all of this and so much more was on my mind, and Rita and I ended up talking about all these things, starting with the anthology I co-edited with Ariel Greenberg called Starting Today. 100 Poems for 100 Days, for which Rita had written a fabulous forward. It's hard to describe Rita's radiance. She is brilliant and warm, erudite, serious, and fun. I think this comes through in the conversation. It certainly comes through in her work, which I urge you to read if you haven't. Rita Dove was the youngest person and the first African-American to be appointed Poet Laureate, 
She's the author of many books of poetry, including Thomas and Beulah, for which she won a Pulitzer Prize. She is also a playwright, fiction writer, musician, lyricist, and avid ballroom dancer with her partner and husband, Fred Vibon. And of course, she's a professor at the University of Virginia and has been for many years. Links to the people and things we talk about in this episode, including the band Tank and the Bangas, whose name I could not remember during my conversation with Rita, sorry guys, will be posted on commonpodcast.com. We also have amazing patron extras for this episode. We've got a PDF of Erica Meitner's essay about Rita from Women Poets on Mentorship, a list of some of the blues that Rita's been listening to lately, and thanks to Tank and the Bangas, patrons will get access to a secret track otherwise only available to those who have purchased a physical copy of the album. The song is called Tank's Freestyle, and we're so excited to be able to offer this to our beloved patrons. Our next patron raffle will include copies of Rita's collected poems, a beautiful broadside of Rita's poem silos, some fabulous books donated by Red Hen Storyline Press, the Starting Today anthology, and copies of two books that Rita mentions using in her own writing practice. The first is Making of a Poem, Norton Anthology of Poetic Forms, and the second is The Essential Poets Glossary by Edward Hirsch. Many thanks to Norton, Red Hen Press, University of Iowa Press, and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt for these fabulous books, and to Tank and the Bangas, and to all the publishers who are helping to support Commonplace. Please consider becoming a patron. It is your support that enables the podcast to keep going, and it's enormously fun to be entered in the raffles and receive extra patron bonuses. Visit commonpodcast.com or patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast today to find out more. And listeners, I want you to know that your recent emails, tweets, and shoutouts are enormously sustaining to us as well. Keep on telling us where and when you're listening and what you love. It's been a busy month for us, and I hope you all enjoyed these four episodes. We're going to go back to two episodes a month, but we'll still be giving you plenty of commonplace conversations in May, June, and hopefully for a long, long time. Keep listening, reading, thinking, writing, enjoying art in all its many forms. And thank you. I thought maybe we could start with the Starting Today anthology, mm-hmm. um, which is, I don't even know the right adjective when I think about this book right now. Um, <sighs> yes. You know, I don't know if you remember your beautiful forward, but you ended with, you wrote, And who better to chronicle such change but our poets to distill into words the thrilling murmur that keeps breaking through the background roar here in these pages bearing witness to the first hundred days of the Obama administration. We have the confident and diverse voices of those Shelley called the unacknowledged legislatures, legislators, our poets, Americans, America's cantors singing as Stevie Wonder says in the key of life. So here we are in the first 100 days of a very different. Yes, and and there is no word for it because uh, I agree with you that that um, 
the confidence, the energy, the love that accompanied the 100 days of Obama have been, they are not obliterated, but the fact that we could turn and veer so quickly and uh, is, uh, is, is still to me kind of breathtaking and not in the good sense of that word. I mean, I just still don't get that. On the other hand, I, I, I remember even during all of that enthusiasm and ebullience that we had and everyone saying, oh, now we are post-racial and every black person I knew said, come on, I mean, we're not post-racial. We're starting now to talk about it. And the fact that um, in, in a way we didn't talk about it, mm-hmm. uh, we just sat around celebrating, but instead, because we didn't talk about it, now we have the other side. This is what was bubbling underneath all along. Mm-hmm. So though I feel, I mean, I, I feel terrified every day at not only what's going to happen, but what's being very quickly wiped out, and it takes a long thing, time to start things again. Though I am terrified by that, there's a strand of me who's also at least, there's no word, it's not relieved, but at least I'm thinking, now at least we see, we're looking at the hatred, we're looking at all of these things that are coming up. We have to talk about the elephants that we've had in our room of American history for so long and and acknowledge that we are not the perfect union that we keep bragging to ourselves that we are. Mm -hmm. Do you feel, um, it's interesting to me that that Major uh, has started this Ranga that's celebration, that's the word he keeps using of Obama or for Obama. I mean, I and a few people asked me, oh, are you going to do 100 poems for Trump's first 100 days? And I said, absolutely not. Um, I mean, I certainly there is uh, a really important place in poetry for protest, invective, lament, um, elegy. Um, How do do you see your own work changing now or your students work changing or... I see a lot of great poems being written right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have too. And um, at first, I think there was just uh, a kind of thunderous silence as people just could not process it. What it has done is remind poets that we have not always thought of ourselves as as uh, apart from the hoi polloi, and, you know, a lot of that comes from creative writing programs, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, with this feeling that, well, no one understands poetry, but we're, we're this little uh, medieval guild of, of poets. Um, but, uh, but to realize that, no, poetry is about life. It is always, a, the best poets, I think, have always been somehow thoroughly, not only embedded in life, but imbued with everything that goes through. So as a citizen of the world or a legislator of the race, as Shelley says, you, you of course, are going to be writing about the mood of the times, which means mm-hmm. that you're political. Mm-hmm. And this idea that political poetry, you know, being shunted into the uh, this little pigeonhole of the, the worst of political poetry, which is agitprop, 
kind of, you know, just, I mean, really little more than slogans. That's not poetry. That's a political statement, but it's not poetry, even though it may claim to be. Uh, but but um, people are starting to come around now. Writers are starting to come around realize that there's a whole aspect of their humanity they have not even allowed into their work. Mm. Now, how do you incorporate that? How do you get that in there? And the in this case, and I think that the what the training that we've gotten, most American poets have gotten through creative writing programs, through readings, through whatever, that the, the training and the prosody comes to your age because then you have a way of processing these overwhelming emotions and and events into protest poetry that's really good mm. so i have seen i've seen it change i've seen people grappling with but the, it's a good kind of grappling it's a good seriousness and a good kind of despair i know that in my work i've been uh i haven't published anything since this man has come out to the office mm-hmm. but i have just uh, avalanches of paper at home because the poems are all going. I'll I'll write something that is very celebratory because we need to remind ourselves that we are alive on this earth. And if you fall too deeply into despair, then you're crippled and you can't do anything. So remind yourself that, you know, we can come out of this. Um, So there are some that are celebratory, then there are very bitter poems and there are things that are mixed and, I I haven't quite figured out how to put it together yet. I find others doing it, and I'm so glad they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of my problem for not being able to figure out exactly the right balance is because um, I've been giving lots of interviews, and because I've been active as a public a person and as a you know as as a citizen, because I felt this was important. And it was so I'm getting pulled away from my desk a lot that's mm. all were you in the middle of a of a writing project or a manuscript or um yes <laughs> <laughs> i say wistfully uh, uh yes i was in the, i'm in the middle of a sabbatical and i was just kind of rolling thinking like everyone like then i knew um that certainly nothing like this was going to get in my way right but hey do you feel like you're going to go back to where you were or you're going to need to uh, start over or start in a different place? The writing, pro- it, it was not, this is not a project which is um, thematically driven or, you know, formally driven in that sense. So it's it's not a sequence of poems or anything like that. So uh, it, the poems actually are, I won't have to ditch anything. Mm-hmm. It's just things that I'm working on are changing, but that's cool. Mm-hmm. I I love the fact when when life comes in and bonks you on the head <laughs> and says, ah, "I got to get in there too." I have to, you know. And and so it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's it's making the project. It's delaying when I thought I would be done, because you know now I have a curveball, a big curveball. And uh, but I think the poems will be richer for it. Mm-hmm. I was thinking as you were talking, um, 
you have a, a, a sentence in the introduction to Mother Love, um, which is sort of a defense of, of the employment of mm-hmm. the sonnet. Um, and you say, can't form be a talisman against disintegration? And I do feel like so many of the writers and artists that I've spoken to since the election are talking about trying to find that balance between despair, which leads to like real paralysis and inactivity and, and on the other end, real active uh, protest, which is really important and can feel sustaining and enlivening, but also can take you away from your desk. Mm -hmm. So how do you find that balance? And specifically, do you find that you're turning to form at this moment as a as a way of uh, protecting against disintegration. It's so interesting that you say that because I have found myself in the privacy of my little study, you know, looking at pieces which are tending to just frazzle at the ends and saying, okay, I'm going to do this in a sonnet. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and, and putting it into the sonnet, but at the same time being aware that it might, explode out of the sonnet again. In other words, the form is helping to contain. It's, it's, it's a vessel to pour it into. But um, when it feels safe enough, I might be able to pop it back out again. And I know that in, in former poems of, of mine where, where I'm dealing with something that is really, really too large to handle, it seems, that I've turned to form, like with the poem Parsley, I, I went to a Villanelle mm. at the beginning, and the second part of it is actually a failed Sestina. It mm. was, I started it as a Sestina, and I, in the form gave me the, the, the scaffolding, in a way, to, to let these ideas grow on, and then I was able to take that, that trellis away. I find myself... I'm, not, I'm just picturing my desk now, which is always like the haven that I see off in the distance. It's like <laughs> Mount Sinai, and someday I'm going to get back to it. But right now, I know that there is a thesaurus over to the left, and over to the right, there is a dictionary of poetic forms, mm-hmm. and, and and you know, and also the uh, Hirsch's uh, dictionary of uh, you know or encyclopedia of poetic terms, and I get great solace sometimes just opening it up and saying, "Let's see what." Is it going to be a palette note? Let's mm. do a palette note. Mm. You know, it's, yeah, it does help. Uh-huh. In, in the same way that I've been playing a lot of blues lately in the background, there's this very strict form. There are these three lines which are repeated. Mm. And then comes the line that takes it somewhere else. But the three lines that are repeated have different inflections. Mm. So they mean something slightly different. You said there are 19 men in my neighborhood tell you there are 19 men you know in my neighborhood and you know and then you uh, you know three lines or two lines depending on the blues uh and then comes the the last line which is the point it's the you know it's it's a punchline but it's not really a punchline it just takes it somewhere else and i'm thinking that is such a great example of how when you are so overwhelmed with a misery that you cannot speak then form gives you a way mm. to use language to say something that you can't use language for, okay? Mm. So yes, I mean, I have found myself turning to form, but I don't think they will stay in form mm. because there's also a sense of 
of a false sense of security that can come with form. Um, and in these times, I think we need a little less security. Mm. So let's see. Mm-hmm. It's a dark optimism, mm-hmm. but in my optimistic moments, I guess I feel like this moment at this at this moment where we're struggling with false news mm-hmm. and what's real and what's not real and you know what are going to be the immediate and lasting consequences of having a president who just seems to have no relationship to truth mm-hmm. um there's also a way in which as you just said there is a greater truth that's being exposed i think primarily to white people that their security was not equally available. And and the fantasy that we were post-race was a fantasy, and the shock was not shared by everyone. No. Um, and so that seems, I guess, to me to be how to find forms and voices and... Um, tones mm-hmm. that are honest representations of the disintegration mm-hmm. of of our shared experience um, and our unshared experience yes. rather than uh, trying to make it okay or make it seem okay. Make it seem okay yeah. because everybody wants it to be okay. Yeah. I mean, let's face it, we all do. Um, but But this is, in a weird way, a good step forward Mm. to be able to say okay now the curtain's been ripped back and we see them behind you know and now let's now let's talk Mm -hmm. um it's uh, i i don't know i i there's also this thing of which can work in our favor or not that now we have social media which means information and poems and everything, all thoughts and feelings can be expressed at lightning speed to perfect strangers and also to people that you know. And that sense of being both public and intimate, as soon as you put something on Facebook or something, is something that we're also dealing with. This is new. Yeah. And before, Facebook was a plaything and it was fun and we just said, oh, I had some coffee today and now we've got Pantsuits Nation and Writers Resist and people posting poems because they need to put it out there now because they want, you know, and having people tell their stories back. This I find to be, though, unsettling for the art, so to speak, the form, you know, the craft of poetry, it is enormously exciting, I think. And I feel like now we're talking to each other. Yeah. And now we're trying to figure out all sorts of levels of of poetry, um, you know, from a poem that is meant to be shared in that way or meant to be spoken aloud or meant to be buzzed on the screen and poems that are meant to be held close to your heart and can they do both mm. and I think they can sometimes and sometimes they can you know so so we're as poets now we have realized that that the words that we use have many 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 more layers and hackles and you know thorns than we thought in one sense 
or be more careful with them, even though we're pressed to speak. Mm. And I think that pressure pull puts makes poems makes for some really incredible work. Yeah. So I had this. I, I was getting. I was packing up this morning um, to to drive to to mm-hmm. Charlottesville, and I. Uh, got a text from my a good friend of mine uh, who's a poet and also a, a kid writer, Laurel Snyder, and she lives in Atlanta. And I had that moment, I'm sure you have it many more times than I do, where I was like, oh, I'm so busy. But I also was like, no, no. I said, why don't you just call me? And so she called me and she told me this amazing story that I'm like desperate to know your opinion on. So she I'm blanking on the name of the band, I'll remember later, but a few days ago she went to see this band from New Orleans that was playing in Atlanta. She said it was absolutely amazing, the most interesting music that she'd ever heard. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a mix of jazz, hip-hop, spoken word, funk, um, it was she just said it was like incredible. And it was so incredible that she said she was going to take she she the band was playing again mm-hmm. at a friend of hers performance space. And she decided to take her two kids who are, I think, like nine and 11. And even though it was 1030 at night, she was like, No, I my kids must see this. This was an, a, like a peak experience for me. So she goes to see uh, the band. And they're totally different. So she said, the first night, it was a mostly black audience. It was outside. There was um, this like barbecue set up. People were dancing. People mm-hmm. were drinking. People were, she said, it was, it was amazing. Yes. The second night, this band has had won an award from NPR. Mm-hmm. And so they're, you know, they're kind of like on the up and up. And her friend had booked them for the performance space. And it was a mostly white audience. There were chairs. People had brought their own food and they were eating like sushi and wine. And <laughs> she said, and but the thing that she said was they were dressed really differently and which they mm-hmm. must have decided, yes. you know, to do. And that they um, they played the same songs, but the songs were very subdued. And she said, she was like, I was just blown away. It was really interesting. We, were, we had a whole conversation about code switching. And mm-hmm. and um, I, I was trying to think about ways in which that happens and doesn't happen in poetry. And I'm, th- yeah, right? Because you can't, you of course we do it. Yes. And yet we can't do it in exactly the same way that the band was able to do it, mm-hmm. that they chose to really dress differently, that they, you know, it's on the page. Certainly the audience is bringing their own, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, experience to it. And within the poem, I think there's all sorts of fascinating ways in which poets are talking to different Mm-hmm. people differently in their in their unknown audience right it, whether yes. they're using different languages or things that you know mean two different things to mm-hmm. two different kinds of people um and yet there's a way in which the poem seems more fixed somehow than the band mm-hmm. but i just i when she told me that story i was like i got to ask rita this because i don't know i have the feeling you said, now we're talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And I feel that too. But I also feel 
that were also doing that thing that the band did, which is not by its nature bad. But we are saying, oh, now I'm talking to you. So I'm going to dress mm-hmm. this way and I'm going to use this kind of language. And now I'm talking to you. And I guess I, I was wondering if you feel like your sense of your own audience has changed and and the extent to which, if you feel it at all, that you feel pressure to present differently um, <laughs> to different yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, well, first of all, let me back up and say yeah. that one of the one of the differences between poetry and the and the music and and you you touched upon it, is that that even though we could have the music, the lyrics before us, and the whole score and all that kind of thing, we in a certain way wait for music to be enacted upon us. We we want it to be put on us and go through us, and so that we can experience it. Uh, on that kind of visceral level without having to put ourselves, we want to be transported, without having to put ourselves into it, we're we're taken away. Whereas with a poem, even if someone reads it, but, but especially because it's on the page and it's more, fixed as you said it we have to meet it halfway at least we have to enter that poem and though it may open its doors we have to walk through it um it's not going to just wash us away some maybe Whitman might but still um there is a sense that it there's a meaning that you can't hide Mm. and you can't code switch it too much when present a poem or to read a poem allowed uh which is why i've always felt that that rap and and slam poets are especially slam i mean i think that that's a whole nother category you have to think of it more as performance and music than as poetry because you're supposed to be overwhelmed it's supposed to take you with it you don't have to put much into you know okay into it to to um to to be transported it will transport you itself but in presenting poems i know that i have made uh, somewhat conscious decisions sometimes about what i'm going to wear how i'm going to present mm. myself and of course which poems i'm going to read my sense of my audience has not changed because i do not know who my audience is and i really don't want to know frankly i would prefer to think that and I've told my students this often, I said that for me, the idea of a the way that I would, would like to write is to write as if someone were to dig it up years later and see this anonymous poem and wonder and then read it and feel something from mm. it. Mm. Um, even with historical poems, you can look that stuff up, but you know, just, you know, that they don't know me uh, and they don't know anything about me more than what they can find out out of you know some kind of books or so um so i don't know what my audience is i mean i've been surprised by someone people's reactions to poems that i thought would not at all relate to them i was in i was giving some lectures a couple of years ago in uh, england and this young African male came up to me to tell me that, to thank me for the one of my poems, which was Daystar. And it's a poem about 
a, a woman who is trying to find a moment's peace from her children. Hmm. And she's out in the, in the, behind the garage and just catching a moment while they're napping. And then afterwards, she, she thinks later that night when her husband, you know, rolls over and starts, you know, fucking her and he's going to, she'll think back to this moment where she's nothing in the middle of the day. Now, to me, I would have thought that any young mother or old mother or anyone would say, yes, you know, this. But here was a guy who did, wasn't married and was as free as one could imagine a young male to be except he was also African in England, so that's properly the, the hook. But he was saying, this just, no. Mm. I, I carry it around with me, and I thought, never. To myself, I was saying, no to self. Don't ever assume, even for one poem, that you know who this is going to, who it's going to touch. Um, so I do think that... Um, That in terms of that part of the question, I, I would say no, my audience, I don't know who my audience is and what the change is. I, this anecdote or the story of the band, kind of, I find myself going, uh-huh, yeah, I, I'm not surprised. I'm, I'm a little surprised that they're doing it in this day and age, but uh, when you're performing music, if you really... It, you, you really are tearing out your heart and presenting it to the audience. And um, and the music itself will force you to do that so that even if you've done it a thousand times, it's very hard to dial it in. Uh, and perhaps they just decided that they were exhausted and did not want to pour their heart out in that way to an audience that they knew would be perfectly satisfied with it if they did it the other way. Not that they want to withhold it from them, and I don't know what they you know, wanted to do, but maybe they wanted to save themselves, mm. preserve themselves. Um, I know that there are poems of mine that people will want to hear again, and they are hard to read. They're hard emotionally to read. <coughs> and... Um, Sometimes I'll just say, I, I don't want to read this tonight. I don't I don't have the energy for it, mm -hmm. and therefore I'm not going to read it. And if someone asks me to read it, I find myself going, you know, I'm pulling it all up. Uh -huh. And so I can imagine a band saying, no, we're just going to dress different and do this and get through this. The poems that are hard to read or that take a certain kind of energy, are those, uh, do you think that they're, primarily because of the content of the poem, because of what was happening in your life when you were writing the poem, or something about the risk of reading that poem in that space to those people. And maybe there's no one answer. There's no, there, yeah, there's no one answer. It's rarely because of what was happening in my life at the time of writing the poem because I've had that argument with myself and worked it out in the poem, whatever it is. Hmm. It's, interestingly enough, I don't know what that is. In, but it, in a way, I think it is analogous to the idea that that once the poem was finally written, it it's actually reading it again as a way of, conquering whatever it was again okay huh. whatever that that motion is it's rarely that but 
it 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 can be thematic. It can be something that happens in the poem. Um, Parsley's hard to read because I have to pull up again all of the, yeah, all of not only the event, but the way in which it's expressed in the poem, and that pulling the whale and the villanelle, but it's a restrained whale is 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 breaks my heart because anew because I think of that, yeah of that of that event but also to then pull back in the second part which is mostly you know very not cold but dry i mean just this is what happens um it has a harder edge to it and that is hard to do because i really just want to pummel him to death mm -hmm. but that was part of the reason why <clears throat> i had to write it that way so um that's a hard one um to do but sometimes it's hard because and this gets to to the question, the one part of the question you asked prior. It's hard because of, as you said, trying to express something to an audience that I think will not want to see it that way. Hmm. I have struggled, I think, throughout my life as a poet, or even in my life as not a poet when I was younger, with, with people's expectations of what they were going to get when they saw me or when they, or they knew who I was. When I was a child, it was mostly because I was a little black girl and no one expected a little black girl to be able to do anything at school. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that, that being, uh, you know, accused of, of, having cheated on something because how could I have gotten an A? <laughs> you know, that mm. guy, yeah, that happened. Um, you know, and, and, and just constantly things like that. Um, when I began publishing, uh, I, I remember that when I began writing poems and publishing them in magazines, I was, I really wanted people to see me as a poet and um, not just a black poet. And I use that just you know, very, very, you know, advisedly with a lot of irony. But what I mean is that not to be immediately put into a cubbyhole of what black poets should write about, which mm -hmm. is about being black, as if one could not be in love and not think about being black for a change or walking across the street and and, and feeling the breeze on your arms and you're not going to say, oh, the breeze on my black arms. I mean, come on. So, but, but there's a whole aspect of humanity that was being denied. Now, what that meant was that very often, I think in my early work, I did not mention being black at all. In fact, I avoided it just clearly thinking, look at what, look at me, look at the other parts of me. And it wasn't until I got to Thomas and Bueller that I then said, okay, I got to get this story out and yet even in that story um where the two people are obviously black they are not always thinking about being black mm -hmm. and yet even in the midst of all of that and this is of course i was writing after the black arts movement and 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 all of that and but uh but before kavik khanam and you know they were just starting and in the dark room and so there was this, yeah, anyway, um, by the time I became Poet Laureate, I kept hearing people refer to me as the poet of the people. Now, 
it's fine to be the poet of people. But I kept thinking, you know, really, when you look at my work, it do- it doesn't really strike you as the poems that people are going to be walking around in the street, you know, talking. And I'm thinking, where does this idea come from that I'm the poet of the people? And I think it really comes from the fact that I'm black. Hmm. And therefore, they think, well, you know, in, and and so I find myself struggling always against them, not because to insist too much means to suggest that I don't want to be black, which is nothing's further from the truth. I just want to be seen as a human being. Um, I think this is something that, in varying degrees, so many poets are struggling with, whether it's being black or a woman or young or Jewish or whatever, uh, in varying degrees this happens, this balance between people reading the poems and there can be a kind of smug satisfaction from the readers when they read a poem that's outside of their wheelhouse. They think, ah, I'm reading a black poem, <laughs> you know, or, uh, you know, an Arabian-American poem or something like that, and I get it, and it feels so good. And the person saying, that's not it at all. Read it as a poem mm-hmm. and know that it also touches you. So that um, though sometimes we are talking, or at least we've started talking, Sometimes we're talking to each other. We're talking to the people that we're comfortable with anyway about, you know. But it's a start. Mm-hmm. Because before, no one was talking at all, <laughs> you know, even among their their cohort. Uh, now, at least, there is a sense that sometimes people are at least uh, talking about these things to someone. Mm. And again, we do have Facebook and we have social media. So someone may be talking to one group, but it's open to a lot of others. And you can, you know, it it, it still can touch others. So who knows? I don't know what's going to happen. But we can't let this chance pass us by. Yeah, We really can't. Uh, can we go back for a second? Sure. I mean, everything's, uh, I, it's all swirling around. But I was thinking, you know, about Thomas and Beulah, and I don't want to uh, put any words in your mouth, but, you know, you, you wrote, you've written uh, and, and spoken about it. You've written it in the uh, introduction to the Penguin Anthology a little bit about your time at Iowa. Mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm thinking about my own time at Iowa. I was there 94 to 96. Um, and... I've had a few people on the podcast um, from Iowa, and I feel very grateful to have gone there. It was important to me. And yet, with almost everyone I've talked to, there is a sense of what each person, for very different reasons, had to do to get over mm-hmm. their experience <laughs> there. <laughs> right? To some extent, like, well, I, it took me, I had to do this and this and this until I could like recover. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I was wondering about, um, what happened to you between, uh, leaving Iowa and Thomas and Beulah and, and, and how you came to that moment of realizing I need to, um, in order to write the poems that I really need to write, I have to present this part of myself as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and and then how uh, how the amazing kind of form of that book uh, 
how you came upon that as the mm-hmm. way to 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 move into a new space for yourself. Okay, yeah. I mean, you know, first of all, I think it's not such a bad thing to have adversaries. I mean, you know, and, and, <laughs> yeah. and many people think of Iowa as this adversary, huge adversary, um, because, I mean, though it can break people, and I, I saw it break people, uh, it can also make you... Well, double down and say, okay, who am I really? And what kind of poet am I really? I I did have a horrible time at Iowa. And yet I also learned some of the most important lessons, poetically speaking, and in terms of life there, you know, so uh, I am also I'm grateful for that time. I met my husband there. Thank you know, who knows Mm. that that kind of makes up for everything else. And yet, I do remember very specifically feeling first of all, there's the Iowa voice and there was an Iowa voice and it was kind of just in the air and fed to us and you know you kind of felt like you had to do it this way or you know forget it so much so that afterwards in order to rid myself of that influence which I felt was not my voice I wrote short stories for about a year or a year and a half mm. and I wrote a few poems too but I really concentrated on the art of the short story. And to do that, I read a lot of German novella, which is a little bit longer, but just that whole sense of the story that took me out of my language, took me a little bit closer to that sense of something that is shorter than a novel, something that is shorter than a, and novels were, of course, serialized before that, some shorter than that, you know, being pulled in so completely. And also, I now I can look back on it and say that I I think that instinctively I was relying on my poetic on the lyricism and the my my tendency toward concentration to keep me from going all the way to the novella so that I could just write short stories and indeed I was writing short stories you know twenty pages or so or less so that was just in terms of form in terms of writing one of the things I had to do to get over the Iowa voice and uh also to get over Iowa I, I left the country now <laughs> part of the time I left the country but but I had met my husband and uh, so I um when we he's German and so we spent some significant time in Europe and that was a mind opening experience a place where writers were actually respected and where uh also though writers were writers themselves thought of their art as sometimes it was art and sometimes it was work and if you had to earn a living you couldn't do it by going off and teaching what you loved but you might have to write radio plays you might have to do journalism and these were all different aspects different beats of the same music Uh, so that uh, I remember once meeting some uh, writer who asked me what I was you know we were introducing ourselves and I said I was a poet and I said I write poems and he and he said is that all he and I knew a meeting he wasn't being you know poetry he was saying yeah you're a poet but do have you tried anything else too and why not and and I was being presented with people like Günter Grass who started as a poet and was also an artist and then wrote novels and still wrote poems um and 
and and I realized that this artificial kind of uh, sectioning off of genres that comes as a consequence of teaching these genres was uh, kind of limiting. It limited the the range. It limited where you could go with your own discipline. When I left Iowa, the prevailing mood, I think, in the whole country, and this is mid-70s, was lyric in nature, with a little bit of surrealism. Narrative poetry was certainly kind of looked down upon. It was, Frost was, you know, someone to be laughed at. No one talked about Frost anymore. Um, and so nobody seemed to write any kind of story in a poem. That meant that you had somehow failed at the absolute essence of poetry. Okay. So while I was working on the poems in um, <clears throat> Museum in my second book, uh, and which already were beginning, I guess, to kind of scratch at history, get underneath it, I remember working with him, I had a group of friends, I was living in, in Arizona, and I had this group of friends who were on the West Coast who had started a little magazine, Robert McDowell, and, and actually um, Mark Jarman was over there, and, and they'd started a little magazine called The Reaper, which was was ironic, sort of like Mad Magazine for poets, uh, but that their idea was that, that narrative poetry had gotten a bad rap and lyric had just gone completely, you know, had exploded into some kind of self-congratulatory intonation, you know, to the world. And so it was really a muckraking kind of magazine, just trying to, uh, trying to make a foothold for for narrative poetry. And and it was a little magazine. I remember stapling, helping him to staple together, you know, staple together issues. But but being around them, and kind of bolstered my my feeling that narrative had a place in poetry. And yet, I was not the kind of person or the kind of poet, I guess you could say, who wrote long rambling narratives because my impulse is for concentration and clarity mm. and song you know i've been a musician i wanted it to be the length of a song and no longer you don't know so but what do you do with that if you think you know so i think all of that helped funnel me into the thomas and beulah mm. narratives you know the whole idea of of short short poems but strung together to make a story mm. And working on those short stories, too. I love this image I have of you <clears throat> as like an expat, both uh, location-wise, formally, uh, you know, trying the short story, uh, being out of the country for part of it, being with people who uh, believed in the narrative. Um, like, it's so interesting to, to think about that, like like the, the coming... To the to a kind of poetry that really made sense for you mm -hmm. um, meant leaving poetry in a way, or leaving you know leaving the country of poetry, uh, you know, <laughs> yes. as it had been uh, presented to you, you know, kind of as the only way. Mm -hmm. um, right. yeah. yeah, yeah. It's fascinating to me 
the extent, and maybe it's as simple as the fact that some of the people who were at Iowa when you were there were then teaching at Iowa when I was there. All, I, I can't understand how it could be that the Iowa voice was actually just a ghost haunting, you know, the halls. But it's this, this, I, I do remember that one of the central um, tenets when I was there was that poems should not be about anything. And that took me, I knew mm. that was not what had brought me to poetry. That was yeah. not what I cared about in poems. And in order to kind of reclaim the idea that poems could be about something mm -hmm. took a really long time. It's fascinating. Yeah, and it's it's you're right, and it's really hard work to get back to what brought you to poetry in the first place. When that kind of overwhelming, um, it you know, ten is just kind of drummed into you. I mean, Iowa is the thing about Iowa is, a, is that first of all enjoys that reputation, you know, being the first or whatever and then preeminent when I was there it was like there was only there were only like two or three places mm. in the country that people thought you should go to if you're going to be a poet and Iowa made sure you remember that you know every day but you're also you're also put out in the cornfields you're, it is a hot house it is a it becomes a place where you cannot see reality and what's around you anymore because you're effectively closed off from that and Though poets may come in to give readings and stuff, they come into the hot house and, you know, mm -hmm. have this space. So, so it was a pretty overwhelming thing, and there was that feeling of that poems should be about something. I remember that, um, uh, you know, because of that, I think the workshops are often very um, passive aggressive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and I remember once I, I was so frustrated uh, because these poems were not about anything and so that we could talk I think it's a lot easier to talk about just sonics or to talk about the way in which this image does whatever and how deep it spirals etc uh, than to talk about how that connects with what prompted the poem in the first place or what perhaps didn't prompt the poem and so I had made up my mind one day that I was actually going to do the absolute no-no and ask what the poem was about mm. And this poem was very niftily written, had great formal, I mean, had a wonderful shape to it, all of that stuff. It, uh, great sonics, really, I can't think of what brought the poet to this poem other than showing off. What is the point? Why should I even care? Mm -hmm. Why should I care? And though I didn't say it like that, I just asked, I said, this poem, you know, it's very beautifully written, but I don't understand why it's written. What does it mean? I've never done that, you know? And I could feel the whole cl class clench, and, you know, and I knew I had made an enemy for life with that particular poet. Mm. It's proven to be true. No doubt. So, no, no, I mean, it's... Mm -hmm part of what she does but um but you know to me that's you know I certainly didn't come to poetry to do that yeah uh it's a poem is not a crossword puzzle mm -hmm. for me I, 
if I want to cross a puzzle, I'll do a crossword puzzle. And I know that it's something I'm doing just to avoid doing something else. Um, but uh, that was very hard to shake mm. because I felt maybe this is what poetry is. Mm. And if this is what poetry is, then what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Because I want to do something else. Well, so I have had the pleasure of knowing uh, and sometimes teaching your your former students and they adore you and uh they love this program um so how do you avoid well certainly it's not that hard to avoid the thing that took you a long time to get over um but how Mm -hmm. do you avoid your own uh uh being a being a new version of uh, a monolithic this is what poetry is or how mm-hmm. you know it because oh. I worry about that <clears throat> well I think first of all the fact that you worry about it is a good sign it's a great sign that that you're actually aware of it and it is something they have to worry about um, one of the reasons why I, I love teaching here is that the poets we're teaching are all very different mm. we were very different and when I came here it was Charles Wright and me and Gregor as as the principal poets and Lisa Ruspar and Deborah Nystrom were there and and it still are and now we have Paul Guest it it's so and we're all over the map in terms of how we write um, and so one of the we one of the f- things I found out that I loved was that in terms of um, reading manuscripts for the graduates all of us read them not we don't divide it up or get screeners or anything it's hell on wheels to do that but we do all of us read them and then get together and decide who's going to be here which means that everybody's bringing their their view of what poetry is to the table and uh we like each other thank god Mm -hmm. so that means that the classes, the students are all really different. I mean, I've had students where, I mean, where I would look at the poem and I would almost be afraid of it every week because it's going to be this Ceylon-like poem. You know, I'm going, what am I going to do with this poem? You know, but I was so glad because it would pull me out and then, you know, someone who wrote the Frank O'Hara, you know, poem and, and they learned from each other because they also, it's a small program, thank God, that helps too. Mm-hmm. How it many ha- people are in? Uh, Ten poets, so five a year. Oh, wow. And so it's small, yeah. which means that it's hard for them to fall into a clique unless they want to be lonely. You know, <laughs> you know, you know it's, so they have, to, they have to figure out a way to talk to one another, both on and off the court, so to speak. And, and they do, and they, they run around, and they have softball teams, and they do stuff like that, and they get together spontaneously sometimes. Um, and yet they're vastly different from each other. And that helps keep, I think, all of us honest. Mm-hmm. When I went to Iowa, I remember sitting there in my first workshop, writing down names of poets. People were tossing, I said, oh, so-and-so. You know, they would toss out a name of a poet that they obviously had learned about when they were in um, you know, undergraduate school, but presenting it with such authority because it was a battle, it wasn't a workshop. and. I remember thinking, I don't know this poet. I don't know this poet. And I would write these names down. And then I went to the library, and then I looked them up, and I read everything they had written. So I could, you know, figure that out. But I remember feeling like I couldn't say, 
tell me more about this poet because that would have shown that I was mm. an idiot. Um, and I do try to encourage my students. I say, you cannot know everybody, but you can want to know everybody. So please ask if someone mentioned someone's name, ask who they are. You know, let's talk about it. You know, if you don't get something, you know, say that you don't get it. And I encourage non sequiturs. I say, you do not have to say a perfectly formed, articulate sentence. Mm. Sometimes, if you do, if you want to just go, this poem, you know, mm, fine, just <laughs> say that. You know, so so I keep trying to do it that way and hope that it's, you know, going to be okay. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. I'm, I'm thinking uh, you're, I'm like uh, in a time machine <laughs> somehow. <laughs> this whole week has been like one time machine after another. But I, I think that one of the things that protected me at Iowa, if I'm honest about it, was the kind of privilege that I came with in the sense that um, both, I did not expect to know that much because I hadn't been an English major. So I was a psychology major. And so I think that gave me some permission mm -hmm. to ask the questions that I that I wanted mm -hmm. to ask. I also think because I had gone to an Ivy League undergraduate school and because I was from New York mm -hmm. I and because I was white, I wasn't afraid um, I wasn't as afraid as I could have been or maybe as I should have been that someone was going to say, oh, my God, she's such an idiot. She doesn't know, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. Um, and also, I think I was kind of tone deaf to the posturing that was going on because I'd come right from undergraduate and I didn't even understand what it meant that someone had already written their manuscript and someone else had won the blah 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 right, prize because yeah. I didn't know what the prize was so I was it was it was actually I think quite helpful to 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 be a kind of oblivious that's great, but also yeah. have a, a you know well, I didn't think I was that dumb, you know, so it, it's Well, no, because, yeah, because you had come from the Ivy League school, yeah. because you'd come from New York, where, you know, hey, you know how to get through things and, yeah. and, and find out what you need to know. I think one of the things that saved me, too, was the fact that I did not go directly. I went for a year. I had a Fulbright, and I was in Germany. And so when I came back, and, and you know, a lot of stuff happened there, but I think one of the things that, that was really important was the fact that I suddenly saw my country from another point of view. And the news that I thought I was fairly informed and I thought I had a real healthy criticism of my country, but then I was confronted with facts that had never appeared up in our standard news, you know. And I realized, whoa, you know, there's a lot I don't know and there's a lot of stuff that we think we know as Americans that, you know, we don't know. So I came back feeling like... um there was that kind of cushion too, the feeling of, of, you know, you guys look around, you know, open, open yourselves to these possibilities. And also this feeling linguistically was like, well, I may not understand what this person is saying because they just came from an MA or a PhD program and they're using signifiers or, you know, whatever mm -hmm. the word was. But I just got through a year of study in another language. I can figure this out. It's just another damn yeah. language. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, but, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Um, 
I don't. I can I ask you to read a poem? Sure. Great. You you want to pick? No. What's what's your favorite poem to read? I I don't want. I'm like now I'm but afraid I don't to ask have... you one of the ones no, that's no, hard no. to read. No no. no, no. <laughs> Uh, you know, the ones that are hard to read are hard to read in front of a, a big a big audience uh-huh. because, uh, see, part of the thing about poetry readings is that you write, you write these things, you know, it's a great sense of intimacy with the world. And then to give, give a poetry, a poetry reading is a performance. There's some part of you you have to, you have to say, I have to bring this audience in. And I'm up here and I can't just sit there and curl up and act all, you know, strange. They've come to hear these poems because they want to. And therefore, there's an aspect of performance. But reading, you know, with radio or something, that's almost like writing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So so that don't feel afraid of that. But it's hard for me to choose a poem. I don't have a favorite poem. It depends on my mood. And I, you know, as you we were talking earlier sometimes i can't remember the names of them. <laughs> <laughs> all right well let me ask you um if you'll read this one um uh demeter's prayer to hades um uh, yes yeah i mean i this this that book was really important to me my my first book eating the underworld follows yes. the narrative arc of the myth of persephone so i read you know i read your book and um was really thinking, oh, look how she's doing this. And then when I reread this poem, I have certain new associations with this poem, which are kind of interesting. But anyway. Oh, how interesting. Okay. Yes. I have to ask you about that. Uh, Demeter's Prayer to Hades. This alone is what I wish for you. Knowledge. To understand each desire has an edge. To know we are responsible for the lives we change. No faith comes without cost. No one believes without dying. Now for the first time I see clearly the trail you planted. What ground opened to waste, though you dreamed a wealth of flowers. There are no curses, only mirrors held up to the souls of gods and mortals. And so I give up this fate, too. Believe in yourself. Go ahead. See where it gets you. I know, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I think I was so... uh, I really believed at the time that I was writing about Persephone or through Persephone mm-hmm. that 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 every you know that the the way the myth had been handed down to us was wrong and it was from a male mm-hmm. perspective and really you know what if Persephone um you know what if Hades was not so bad but he was this sort of mysterious figure that Persephone was told as a young girl don't fall in love don't have power don't have ambition and so i i was interested in that like you know this is from the mother's point of view of loss and fear but what if it was from persephone's point of view but it was so interesting because when i reread that i just i just thought oh hades this hades is trump (laughs) (laughs) that's true he you know and 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 i read that line this alone is what I wish for you, knowledge. I have an image of Trump. If he would have one moment 
of true knowledge of self and other and what his actions and beliefs have cost yeah. and will cost, I think he would just drop dead. He would drop, he would, yes. He would yeah. just, yeah, be a pile of ashes. He'd poof, yeah. he'd go up, yeah. So I, that line just, I was like, oh, just blew me away. Mm -hmm. I just thought, yeah, that's, I guess, you know, I, I don't even know what to wish for recently. Like, what do I wish upon him? Because, you know, if he... If he gets assassinated, then we're going to have, Pence. you know, Pence. If, if he gets, you know, if, if he leaves a legacy, like there's, there seems, yeah. sometimes it just seems like there's no good outcome. And this, I don't know, this gave me this moment where it's just like, you know what I'm going to wish for? That he has, I mean, I'm going to wish for a lot of things. I'm going to wish he gets, gets impeached, frankly. Yes, right. Soon. But, Very soon. But also just one moment of real knowledge and I, that's mm -hmm. that's going to do him in right. i don't know this might be well totally i do naive. think i think it could i mean because for him i mean i think there are characters who are so profoundly evil that knowledge would not help either um that knowledge they'd simply say well yeah look sounds cool to me i mean the true psychopaths and i don't think he's a true psychopath i think that He's a fairly narcissistic um, uh, megalomaniac and that um, he keeps himself from knowledge and uh, perhaps through lack of ability, but also because in a certain way he's running on top of the water he's tr so that he doesn't fall in. And, and so knowledge would sink him. Right. Um, it's, yeah. Well, we all know men like that. I mean, and, 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 and I agree with you with this myth. I always felt too, it was like, no, there's more to it than that. That's too simple an explanation. Don't wander off or you're going to get kidnapped. See what happened to you, bad, bad girl. Um, you know, your mother is bereft at the side of the field. And I can think, but, but wait a minute, you know, that. Uh, it wouldn't have come down through the years just with that. And what's with those pomegranate seeds? Mm -hmm. You know, what the hell was she doing that for? And she goes back, and that doesn't seem quite right either, unless something's more to this. And so, yeah, but um, there are men like that, mm -hmm. you know. And and uh, Hades wasn't the first, and Trump isn't the last. Hmm. How old was your daughter when you wrote Mother Love? Um, I'm going to have to think back on, let me see, Mother Love. It says it was published in 89, no, 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 95. Was it 95? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. The poet laureateship got it in the way. Um, <laughs> it, but I was writing them, I started writing them when she was, yeah, I started writing them when she was like eight or nine. So that would have been, she was eight, born in 83, so it was 91, something like that. And so she began, she grew in those you know, those great years, just, you know, up to puberty. And uh, as she grew in those years, nine, 10, 11, 12, she became her own person. She grew away from me. She began, she had started getting breasts and all that kind of stuff. And 
as I was writing those poems, the first I was writing them and really getting into um, Demeter or Demeter, I, you know, I don't care. Um, I say Demeter all the time because I think I started writing them when I was in Germany, so I would always hear it that way. But um, it was mostly from the point of view of the mother, the mother who mourns the loss of her daughter. But she was growing and changing. And suddenly I thought I became the daughter. I suddenly began to identify with what she was going through again. Because one of the wonderful things about kids is that as they're growing, they rem they remind you what you were like at that age. You remind you of childhood. And uh, I suddenly thought, oh, oh, it goes both ways. The you know, it, keeps, it just keeps spiraling around. And then I began to explore what what exactly the daughter was going through and you know yes there are tragedies where someone is kidnapped and where it goes but this was not that story yeah. this was not that story it had never been that story so so it was during those years and by the time it came out there she was she was you know what was she 12 I don't know I'm mm. bad at math mm. I bet simple addition yeah she was 12 and um, I felt like, in a certain way, I had said goodbye to my little girl. Mm. And and witnessed the transformation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's really, it's really fascinating. Well, motherhood is, I mean, it just hasn't been, it is now being explored. And I'm mm -hmm. so grateful for your poems and for the poems of other women who are really talking about all aspects of being a woman, which, eh, let's face it, gender-wise, I mean, we've been put in these little boxes, too. And if you were going to talk about motherhood, it was either to complain about ironing or, <laughs> you know, or to talk about how much you love your kids or how much they got in your way and how much you want to get away from your daddy or what, you know, and all these things are all valid and good, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. It's just, just in there. Absolutely. Yeah. It was such a pleasure going back through your books and um, and rereading um, the introduction to the Penguin Anthology and thinking <laughs> about that controversy. Um, and you know, I guess I I I kept wondering how does Rita feel right now about all of this? Like, you know, you really paved the way for a lot of poets and some of the things that you were writing about and some of the controversies that came up around you um, are the things we're talking about now, mm -hmm. but more, um, it's now, I think it, it feels like we can't avoid talking about those things now. And, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. 25 mm -hmm. years ago, it, it, I think there was a sense to some extent of like, why is she talking about that? Why, <laughs> why are we having this conversation? Yeah. And it's, I, I guess I was wondering, do you feel like, I've been talking about this the whole time? Or do you feel like, um, okay, um, this is really good. We're at a place where we cannot avoid talking about this. Um, or do you feel like, Okay, we were coming to a place where we were actually having um, a really important conversation, 
Not everybody was on board, but a lot of people were on board. And now there's like some kind of insane backlash. And I I don't know. I yeah. be, I'm very confused about this moment. Confused is not the right word. But I know what you mean. Yeah. I know what you mean. And I go, well, there's a lot of things in this. And I, let's see. Um, first of all, I I feel that I never thought of myself as being a particularly outspoken or brave person. Hmm. I was always very shy as a child, and I really thought that, you know, I, my tendency is to hold my counsel, you know, and, and to, to keep my counsel, I'm sorry, and to uh, let others speak if they want um, and think my own thoughts. Part of that has to do with shyness. But uh, at the same time, I realized that, that when I read or when I was in, reading books, I became really, really bold and, and fearless because mm. I became that person. So so that that when I wrote, I never felt afraid, and I would just kind of go out there. So I felt like this is, this is missing in the world. I'm putting it in there. I'm going to talk about what it's like to be a human being and I happen to be black and some people might think that's kind of bold but I think it's just a statement of fact and 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 um, I think I, I pretty much did that all my life um, there was another part of this and that is a feeling that I always felt like I had to uh, when I finished a book I needed to go somewhere where which frightened me mm. uh, that I needed to go someplace which was not familiar territory that I did that because, first of all, it's it's in a weird way fun mm-hmm. to learn something new, and uh, yeah, it's just it, I wanted to stretch as a writer. That's the nerdy part of me too that wants to just kind of stretch. But I never really thought wanted to look back on my career. So when my editor. Said when Jill said, "Look, you know, it's time for you to think about collecting all these books." And I had realized that I sometimes I would get frustrated because people only knew Thomas and Beulah, or they only, you know, they, they just. And I kept thinking, but as you said, but I did that so long ago, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone's talking about so and so's historical perspective. But I, but I, and that's okay. It's fine. It's a, yeah, we're all in this together. So I thought, okay, maybe just in terms of the market, it's a good thing to do a collected because there you get, you know, then everybody can read it and, and read the early poems. And so, I, but I had to read them all over again too. Yeah. And though I resisted at first, I started reading, I, and I had forgotten. I mean, I not not the poems, but I've to see the 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 arc, the trajectory of of the of the career, and I'd forgotten um, where I had started and how. For me, at the beginning, in some of those early poems, I'm always stepping out in the backyard. I'm always stepping, you know, into these safe domestic places, which then become strange and weird. And so I made a terrain and then and then they get a little bit wider and you know I start putting my little toe out uh in, into the world and and I realized that they were in fact very brave um and that uh and, and it made me feel 
I don't know, it made me feel good, but it also made me feel like that, that I had not um, settled into any comfortable space. Mm. Um, and it also made me be a little bit more at peace and centered in terms of, of where we're at now, which mm. I feel that we're constantly, you, you just can't take anything for granted. And perhaps this is why I was always saying I've got to go someplace where I'm feeling uncomfortable because to feel comfortable in space is, is probably one of the most dangerous things you can do. Mm. And that is to, because if you feel comfortable where you're at and what you're doing, that means that you're not looking at a lot of stuff around you. You're just really happy. We're really happy with that moment. And, it's, and, and to push myself in terms of poems somewhere else meant that I had to deal with an aspect of my of my world and personality that I had uh, not looked at before because it was just too much difficulty. Mm. Um, and though I didn't push myself for all of that highfalutin reasons, I was doing it more in terms of craft and all, not, not wanting to repeat myself, uh, those kind of basic things. I think that that that, uh, that was a happy consequence of it. So my feeling is that this moment that we're in now is one that uh, it, it, it's really the, the apotheosis of our desire to feel comfortable in moments. Mm. And it's all, you know, kind of exploding on us. It was always there. And in a certain way, it will always be there unless we continue to keep working at it. Mm -hmm. You have to keep working at it. You can't, we can't assume that, ah, now we've reached, you know, understanding. Because, yeah, no, because things are always changing. People are always coming up. There are new people coming up. There are new people growing to end. And no one person should claim it as uh, that they discovered something or that they wrote this or whatever. It's all changing. All of that stuff is in this moment, I think. Um, earlier, and this is rambling, I know, but that's all right. No. Okay. Earlier, we had talked before the, before the, you know, the recorder began to run. We were talking about marriage, and uh, my husband and I have just, celebrated our 38th wedding anniversary and you asked what the secret was and you know it's it's no secret I think that one of the the greatest things uh, one can learn in a marriage or in any relationship or anything is that it is constantly changing mm -hmm. and therefore you are constantly changing it makes sense that relationships that the world that your marriage whatever it's going to be a constant readjustment which means that you have to be give it as much care and attention as on that first date when you're trying to figure out the person you're trying to get figure out what you have in common so that you can be buoyed by that commonness uh you know commonality and and to to recognize that means that that you you change together or you figure out ways to change together it's a i find that infinitely fascinating mm. and um i think that that's one of the things that we as a country have failed to do we i mean there was the big moment when we broke away from the british and 
those ideals, the ideals of freedom and individuality and all of this stuff, that's the American myth that we have carried around, you know, that little warm mantle we've put around us and felt comfy in since that time, in a way, when, you know, if you really look at it, I mean, there's, there's, there was slavery all over the place, not just in the South, but also in the North. And, and whenever we had a problem, we just struck out for the territories and just killed a few more Native Americans and took over. But we ran, we ran, we ran, we ran all in the sense of freedom. Mm-hmm. And then we hit the other coast and then we started just living off of that dream in our own little pockets. Um, the Vietnam War was one wake-up call, but we, and so people began to move. And, and I mean, I come from right after the generation that came of age at that time, so I was, you know, in 12, 13, 14, 15, when stuff started to crumble um, in the 60s, and uh, and yet you'll find people from the 60s, well, this is the greatest time that ever happened. And you look back on the, the days of the hippies and how wonderful it was, and yes, it was wonderful because everyone was alive and, and protesting, but it was pretty horrible what was happening, mm-hmm. you know, but now we look back and say, well, yes, I felt alive for the first time. So these changes, that change we just didn't take, it didn't take. I mean, mm. we didn't take it to heart. We, we decided that shows how great America is. We fed right back into the comfortable aspect of the myth. And um, now it's coming out again. Yeah. Now it's bursting out again. One of the reasons uh, also the, why I moved to Virginia, because I'm from the Midwest and the South filled me with terror, the whole notion of the South. And, uh, but one of the things that I found so fascinating about moving to Charlottesville in particular was because it was Thomas Jefferson's university, truly one of the most conflicted human beings, you know, that we have yeah. and that we claim. And you've got the Confederacy right down the pike there in Richmond and you got you know, Monticello up there, and you've got Washington, you know, over there. And I'm thinking, here it is. This is the epicenter of America's myths and fantasies and hopes all right here. And now we've got this little university, which is a, a bubble, you know, but it's all innocent around us. So, you know, I, I really found that this was where I needed to be. Mm-hmm in a way to constantly remind me that you can't be complacent. Mm. And what do you think right now, you know, I see my, I see my 17 year old really struggling with this. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a real, um, he's looking for, I mean, we're all looking for, well, Mm-hmm. Most of us are looking for, um, but I see it so urgently in him. What is the best way not to be complacent? You know, how does one yeah. act and and um, and hopefully I mean, you just go back. I mean, I, I learned yesterday for the first time that. Lord Dunmore uh, freed the slaves in Virginia if to go and fight for the British. And then when the British lost, 
Some of them got to go to England or to other countries or to the West Indies um, uh, and then did not become slaves again. Um, but some of them were just sent right back. Sent right back. Sent right back. And, you know, I mean, this, you know, each each place we went, we, when, we, when you cross over the bridge, um, the footbridge into Colonial Williamsburg, mm-hmm. there are those little things that they're like, you're going back in time, you're going back in time. Yes. And <clears throat> the language is fascinating, right? So one of them says, I can't remember the exact year, maybe it might be 1954, um, and it says, from this date, you tolerate segregated schools, Okay, well, first mm-hmm. of all, what the you word tolerate. tolerate is so bizarre, but also we are currently tolerating segregated schools. Yes. So, it, you know, each, it's, you know, even my nine-year-old is totally aware of the, the, the it, irony isn't even the right word, no, of, of Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence, and having spent so much money um, himself personally that his 130 slaves were sold off instead of being able to mm-hmm. grant them freedom. I mean, the 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 the, the, the profound hypocrisy and 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 trauma mm-hmm. of each myth, as you say, of American history and freedom and all of these things is tied to these utterly devastating you know traumas yes it's just yeah and our children i know i i feel so for them Mm -hmm. i don't know what it would i can't even begin to imagine what it's like for them contemplating their future at this moment uh because yeah there's so much to kind of tie into. Um, first of all, one of the things we can try to tell them, both as a solace but as a cautionary tale, is that you have to put Jefferson and his ilk into the context of their time. And what was even being said or yeah, what, what was even being said about slavery at the time? So that to think of them as monsters is to apply our 21st century knowledge of, of, of slavery and what it has done and what we've done up to now to them. And that's unfair in mm. a way. That's not to condone what they did. But to say that it was not discussed, it was not, he did not get any blowback, any pushback from it, anything like that. Everybody was doing it, whatever. So you have to think of that too. But you also have to think of the fact that um, that they, they did not have the kind of media system that we have. Therefore, to see a black person, to to converse with, not even converse, to to see a black person and to be around them, it's very possible that people didn't do it that often, didn't have an opportunity to even see them as human beings. Mm. Yes, they made sure that they cut them off from their families and their 
tribe so that they had no language, so therefore you couldn't even communicate, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it was easier to turn a blind eye Mm -hmm. because it wasn't going to be constantly paraded in front of you. Um, On the other hand, it's a cautionary tale because as if to say, we don't even know what we're blind to right mm-hmm. now. The, that generations from now will look back and say, how could they have done that? Which means stay alert, stay vigilant, keep yourself open. Think about the basic... I can't find a word for it. Dignity is too stiff, worth is too much maltzy of a human being, of what mm. it is to be alive. I would say to our children, it is not selfish to try to find what you are passionate about, what makes you feel the most yourself and the most alive. Because that means that you will do everything to do that as the best that you can and you will work at it. You can at the same time be a citizen of the world and to work and to fight against things and protest, but you are in a certain way no good to a movement of any kind or any kind of change if you're not bringing your whole self and what you have to offer to the table, but you have to develop that self. So there's a, you know, there's a disconnect there. You can go out in the street and protest before you found yourself, you know, truly. But never neglect the fact that if you like to make hats, I'm just trying to find something. Don't say, oh, no, that's so silly. Think about it and make sure that you understand that, you know, follow your passion. I think that that by following your passion, you discover that you have to work to make that passion to to develop the way that you can actually pour your desire into your passion, if that makes any sense, and make it come out so that it actually makes someone else move someone else. And then when you realize what work can do, what work, how that enlarges us, how that leads us into paths that we don't even understand uh, yet, then that, and also how it enables you, this work will enable you to touch people that you haven't, or get in contact with people who you, you never would have thought that you would have gotten in contact with. Hence, learning about their points of view as they come to that. You know, I, I think almost anything you want to do, whether it's carpentry or 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 making rugs or dance or or becoming even, um, you know, or economics, if you follow it, you know, really honestly to, to, then you will at some point come to the same kinds of conclusions, this idea of seeing things from a different viewpoint, Mm -hmm. Uh, seeing how economics works for the farmer or for the man who, um, you know, can't go into the, the coal mines anymore. And whether that's going to be viable, coals, you you suddenly find yourself in murky areas that are absolutely essential for your work. And if you're really honest about it, because you love economics, then you're going to realize there are people attached to it, and that's 
part of it too. I mean, I really do believe that, mm-hmm. and I and I think that, but to, you know, to follow without fulfilling your passions means that you are a frustrated human being, which can lead to um, vindictiveness. Mm-hmm striking out because there's no other way to do it you strike out because you're helpless and you can't and you feel lousy frankly Mm. in your body you feel lousy in yourself and if you know what feeling lousy in yourself feels like and have gone beyond that then you understand why you have to make sure other people don't feel that way Mm -hmm. right that so it, uh, then it comes right back to politics, comes right back to getting people jobs here. How can we best do this? Mm-hmm. How can we edu- yeah, educate our kids so that they know how to find another way when, when one way is, is cut off? Right. Uh, so I, I say for, for our children, we tell them, you know, you have, especially when you're young, so much more energy than you think you have, number one. And use it. Follow your passion, go out on the streets, do them both. You know, listen to what they never listen to their elders, but you can <laughs> say it again, you know, say, you know, and, and if you don't want to believe it, go ahead and do something else, but remember it. That's all. Just mm-hmm. remember it. You might need it later. And I love, I love that. I love, and I love, um, you know, I think I, I keep thinking about, um, Supposedly, uh, one in particular, one of Thomas Jefferson's sons with with Sally Hemings looked just like him. Yes. And I'm thinking about that blindness. Like, why why wasn't that enough? I mean, there there should have been a hundred things else that were enough for him to make the connection. He's clearly a very intelligent, you know, person. But but just that blindness of not being able to make the connection of humanity mm-hmm. um, I think that that the part of that of that story that is so clearly the cautionary tale of like what is what are we blind to right mm-hmm. now can be so immobilizing but you can't let it I mean you, you have to be open to it yeah. for sure right but to let it completely paralyze you and say oh I must be you know doing everything wrong therefore I shouldn't do anything um, is not the solution obviously because then you get all the people who are (laughs) really self aware (laughs) who are doing nothing or who are trying for self awareness doing nothing and you only have the people left who say I don't give a shit what I'm doing wrong who are doing everything they can Exactly. That's a nightmare. Yes, that's the nightmare. We have the we have that to some extent with the president. That's exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what we have. And I think you're right. You you know, doing doing nothing is never the solution. Right. I feel like we are always going to be students. We're always going to be students of the human race. And which means that you're going to keep learning lessons and going, "Ooh, that wasn't a great, uh, you know, okay, mm. I, I thought I I was right then, but I wasn't." Um and uh or I you know, I wasn't as right as I thought I was, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. The thing to do is to be a student. Um, one of the things that I've also tried to do, I mean, I, I used to be a musician uh, and I've changed instruments over the years as as I had to because of travel and stuff like that from cello to, you know, and, and 
to voice, which is probably the most transportable of them all. Um, but I also, uh, my husband and I do ballroom dancing. Right. When we started that, and it was really kind of revelatory because we started, I felt like, you know, I was back in first grade again. I mean, you really feel totally stupid because your body is not responding right and you feel awkward and you know and I knew that I looked bad you see hmm. it was you know so it wasn't like in kindergarten when you're all just happy it was like I knew I was doing something wrong and it was a very humbling experience and I and it was so illumin it was illuminating it was helpful actually hmm. to be a student again really to remind yourself that you there are things that you know nothing about and that you're really bad at and that but to want to try to learn that keeps can help keep you honest too and also was yeah and it's something to be fun to learn it and then you do get better but you know you just have to apply yourself so you know we did that and then we started argentine tango which was starting off from square one again because it's totally different from the other one and 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 I know that, you know, if, if I'm not, you know, if I'm still around in a few years, so I'm going to do something else. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to take a, you know, cake decorating class or something. <laughs> you see, something that would just make you right. apply yourself again. Yeah. Right, because then you have empathy for your students who are learning things mm -hmm. new. And you know what it feels like to feel wrong and keep going. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. I, and, you, and to do, and especially the dancing to be doing that with your husband um, and to be in it together, literally, literally in yeah. It together. Yeah. It's fascinating. And I, yeah. I also, I, I'm glad you brought up the dancing because, um, you know, I was thinking about Sharon Olds who loves to dance. Um, but I do think that, that there's something really important about having bodily pleasures and I don't know, hobbies always seems like such a demeaning mm -hmm. word, but yeah. things that take you outside of the, of, of the part of your life that you are really invested in, mm -hmm. that you can, that you can, uh, enjoy and explore. I think that seems so stabilizing and, um, and I'm trying to like learn that myself and also tell my students that like find mm -hmm. a thing and then find another thing and then find another thing because I do see that as you know it's it, it can be a little frightening to me when I have the students who are just like all I want in life is to be a poet and I'm going to do that and nothing else and it's so much pressure they're putting on themselves I want to be like yeah just why don't you go you know watch tv or yeah, you know like or, go go garden or right, something play the Not, ukulele yes, do something yes. because i'm with students who you know i have them too you know who are like i'm gonna be a poet and i say well what are you interested in in life i'm interested in poetry so no no <laughs> you know, poetry is about life so therefore you have to have come to poetry not just because you love poetry, but because it reminded you of something that made you feel vitally alive, et cetera. So you find that thing again yeah. and then come back to me and say you want to be a poet, number one. But also I think that, as you say, it can be really, really scary. But on the other hand, it can also be a little bit encouraging when you realize that, as you said, do we have to continually keep working at things? 
Are, why are we not further along the road? No, we're just taking another class. We're just learning again. Mm-hmm. And you were, you're reminded that that you can can start something and feel totally inept at it, but you can, you know, get better at mm-hmm. it and can experience that kind of joy. Um, the other part, and I forgot it. Rats. What was it about? Um, oh well. It'll it, maybe it, it'll come to you. Yeah. I what, remind now. Do you say? Apologia or apologia? Now we're Demeter, Demeter. I um, and I know you can do both. I was going to ask you if maybe uh, we could end with you reading that poem. Okay. I do. I love the idea of our our country in in a marriage you know or it it being similar to that and Mm -hmm. working on our relationships with each other the way one does in a long marriage um sometimes i worry that it's just a a terribly abusive marriage and the country (laughs) should just go to a shelter and break up and turn the guy in for you know battery um in the better moments Mm -hmm. i think okay well you know we don't always treat the people we love well um and yet we stick you know you stick stick it out um and you learn about yourself and you learn about the other person and you figure out again and again and again ways of relating Mm -hmm. but i sometimes i'm not sure what kind of marriage this is (laughs) yeah yeah i know Um, what you mean i know um yeah I'm I I know what you mean and and th- there is something to be said for sometimes living uh just establishing some rules yeah until uh, the difference is of course is that this marriage is always being replenished by the young so you know you establish different rules until the people grow up under a certain set of rules and they just know it and you, you you hope that eventually the the nasty parts die out right. um and uh i do think that you can see that the acceptance more or less of um women who women with intelligence women who have second jobs and that being a mother or being a parent is not necessarily the apron, wait for your husband to come home thing. That really pretty much happened because generations grew up in an atmosphere where that was being combated, you see? And it's and so it gradually changed. And I don't know that it's going to, oh, knock on wood, I don't think it might you know go all the way back. Mm-hmm. We have to that happens too in that kind of marriage but in a in a in a marriage between two human beings who have a certain lifespan and you know that they choose to spend a portion of it together uh to realize that that is not when you say i do or whatever you say at that moment doesn't mean that okay now we're going to stay the same forever it Mm. just means now we're going to walk together for a certain amount of time and let's hope we can enjoy that walk basically so this poem cozy apologia is uh, a poem about that 
middle point in marriage, which no one, I think, has been written about that much. Uh, this is that place where you're, you are cozy with one another. It's a wonderful space and a wonderful way of being in love, too. For Fred, I could pick anything and think of you. This lamp, the wind still rain, the glossy blue my pen exudes drying matte upon the page. I could choose any hero, any cause or age, and sure as shooting arrows to the heart, astride a dappled mare, legs braced as far apart as standing in silver stirrups will allow. There you'll be, with furrowed brow and chain mail glinting to set me free, one eye smiling, the other firm upon the enemy. This post-postmodern age is all business, compact discs and faxes, a do-it-now-and-take-no-risks event. Today, a hurricane is nudging up the coast, oddly male, big bad Floyd, who brings a host of daydreams, awkward reminiscences of teenage crushes on worthless boys whose only talent was to kiss you senseless. They all had sissy names, Marcel, Percy, Dewey, were thin as licorice and as chewy, sweet with a dark and hollow center. Floyd's cussing up a storm. You're bunkered in your airy, I'm perched in mine, twin desks, computers, hardwood floors. We're content, but fall short of the divine. Still, it's embarrassing, this happiness. Who's satisfied simply with what's good for us? When has the ordinary ever been news? And yet, because nothing else will do to keep me from melancholy, call it blues, I fill this stolen time with you. Oh, I love that poem. It was so great about... The middle stanza for me is that it it tries to be so up to date and everything in it is totally out of date already. You know, <laughs> faxes and compact discs and you, you always feel like, you know, you're on the top of the moment at that moment and then it just goes away. And then there's Floyd who is oddly male and people now are like, what do you mean oddly male? We've got him, you know. And so that's a, a case of where where what has what was revolutionary is now just ordinary floyd mm. why not it's a great poem <laughs> thanks thanks i i yeah i like that poem mm. Mm. it's a hard one uh to have it was hard to write because you know when it's ordinary ever been news mm. and i do think in that poem you know the rhymes were very helpful do you remember the circumstances of writing that one it was one of those rare poems for me where it was written pretty much around the time that the circumstances happened. In fact, I was in my room and my husband's study is down the hall. And and often we would, um, we, we don't like yell at each other, we would send each other like email messages and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So we were connected, but not connected. He could have been on the other side of the world, but he was next door. And this, but this hurricane was coming, um, which didn't touch us quite, but the world was changing outside and I was looking at it and it felt a little like the world was about to come in on us. 
and swirl us, you know, take us, you know, out of Kansas. Um, and I started writing it at that point. Uh, it took a couple of weeks to finish, but the essence of it was right there. That this all I did is I wanted to have a stay against the disintegration of that of that hurricane through the rhymes, and the rhymes were a solace. But I also felt like if you it can't be a solace completely, so you got to get faxes in there and mm. compact discs. It's a lullaby in a way. Mm-hmm. It's just so beautiful too, as a as a sense of and and I and I really feel that there's a such a dearth, you know, such a dearth of of poems and art by mothers, and there's such mm. a dearth of poems about long relationships. And that particular feeling of being with someone, not in the same room or necessarily, Mm -hmm. but knowing that you have your beloved, whether it's your lover, your husband, your partner, your best friend, Mm -hmm. but those long relationships um, that are that kind of connection and like how to describe that. I feel like the poem just does this beautiful job of describing uh, no, whatever is coming. You don't know that you're going to be okay, mm-hmm. but you know, you have your person. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's something that um, you can't understand until you've had that kind of relationship with someone. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, Yeah. Yeah. I hope there'll be more poems by others about this. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, thank you so much. You're this welcome. Was absolutely. Uh, it's so great to meet you. And I'm just, <laughs> I, I think we've just started the conversation. Me that's too. That's going to go on oh, through the years. So. All right. I'm going to stop. Otherwise, because I'll, otherwise I'll never. This has been episode 27 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. Music by Moses Zucker-Gorin, design work by Eitan Darwish. Commonplace makers are Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, Zach Tackett, and our advisor in everything is Daniel Schiffman. Thank you to Norton, Redhead Press, University of Iowa Press, and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt for these fabulous books and to Tank and the Bangas, and to all the publishers who are helping support Commonplace. And thank you, listener.